Hello and welcome to the So What podcast, in which political economic analyst J.P. Lantman discusses the issues uppermost in the minds of South Africans. You can find a written version of this content on J.P.'s website, jplantman.co.za. I am Ruda Lantman and I am your host. This episode goes with the newsletter dated the 9th of November 2023, which you can find on the website under the title Thoughts After a Visit to China. JB, getting off the plane, first impressions that evening, you landed at what, 11 o'clock at night? Yes. First impression, incredible social organization. Uh, the efficiency with which people uh, and your luggage and everything else uh, gets processed uh, is, is simply unreal. And that was the uh, that was noticeable throughout our visit. I just want to make it clear, Ruda, just like one swallow certainly doesn't make a sw- uh, summer, uh, one visit to China doesn't make one an expert? Certainly not. But these are just my initial impressions as, they, as, as I experienced them. And the first one is the incredible level of social organization. But the flip side of that is security. Absolutely. There are cameras everywhere. You've got to show your passport wherever you go. Uh, if you take a train trip, you show your passport. Or if you're a Chinese citizen, your ID card. When you enter the station and again when you are on the platform and you want to enter the train. Yes, security is very strong. No question about it. You were also impressed by infrastructure. Yes. Again, you know, nothing really prepares you for it. One hears about these things. One hears about uh, 40 and 50 and 60 story residential buildings and so on. But nothing really prepares you for for the physical infrastructure, for the buildings, the roads, the highways, the trains, uh, the power lines. Wherever you go, you see power lines. We took a train from Beijing to Qiyan. Uh, in the Shanxi province, where that's where the terracotta soldiers are. Uh, it's a distance more or less from Johannesburg to Cape Town. The train covered it in four hours and seven minutes. It, it is simply unreal. Um, it's a, Six years ago, seven years ago, that train line did not exist. It was simply wasn't there. So what they've done in terms of infrastructure is incredible. What they're busy doing in, in terms of digital infrastructure is also incredible. You can move around the entire Beijing and never use any cash. Uh, everything is on a cell phone, a smartphone, and people who know say that WeChat is much more is much better than we uh, than um, WhatsApp. So it's not just physical infrastructure; it's also digital. And all of this happened, all of this changed in 40 years. 40 years ago, it looked very different, one would assume. Absolutely. Uh, when Deng Xiaoping launched these reforms in 1978, uh, now 45 years ago, India, uh, China rather, was a backward, uh, poor country. There's, there's no question about it. The photographs show it. Documentaries from the time show it. People who live show it. Uh, people who are alive uh, can testify to it. And I, well, what, it was just after the Cultural Revolution. It yes, was, absolutely. Uh, it started in, as I said, in 1978. And I want to tell you two anecdotes that I think illustrate the point best. The first one is from a gentleman who's now 48 years old. 40 years ago, he was eight years old. He went to school in Baoji. Nobody in school had had shoes. There was simply not enough money around for parents to give shoes to the children. 
Um, today, 40 years later, he runs a business with 10 primary schools or kindergarten schools, as he calls them. He charges 10,000 renminbi per month per child. That's about 25, 26,000 rand per month per child. And he's got 10 of these schools in Barji. So from a level of income where people couldn't have shoes to a level of income where parents can afford to pay that amount of money. Uh, it is it is simply transformational. It doesn't matter how you look at it. It's transformational. And those, those schools are, this is a private enterprise. Completely private enterprise, completely privately run, belongs to him. The properties where the schools are belong to him, completely private. He found his name in South Africa. Well, did he find his name or South Africa that, or did we copy it? He calls his schools the Curo schools. <laughs> uh, some people say, indeed, everything is made in China. <laughs> and uh, the other person you met, whose story also the, struck you? The other gentleman is about 45 years old, and he recalls how, as a young child, his mother sent him on a bicycle to a neighboring village to go and buy some paraffin for use in the in the house, in the kitchen. There was no paraffin available in their village. And secondly, they needed a ration card. There were rations on all products. So he needed a ration card, take that with him on the bicycle, go to a nearby village, buy a bit of paraffin, come back. He is simply amazed that today there's no limit to the consumer goods that he, that he can buy. There's no shortage of electricity, of gas, of food, of clothes. He can buy whatever he can afford, uh, which is available in abundant supply. And it tells you what happened in 40 years. And what struck me most was that nothing that I read, uh, nothing that I tried and investigated beforehand prepared me for the sheer quantum of what they've done in 40 years. It's really incredible. Well, all of this was possible because of economic growth. What What's the recipe? Very, very interesting. I think it seems to me it comes down to two things, local government and embracing the private sector, or as Chinese prefer to call them, entrepreneurs. They don't really talk about private sector, but they do use the term entrepreneur as a substitute. The first point is local government. After 1978, Deng Xiaoping uh, started with experimentation, allowed different local governments, different provinces to do different things. And they basically set up a, an incentive and reward scheme to reward city leaders, town leaders, to, to generate economic growth. But it sounds as if it's on both those levels, local government and provincial. Absolutely, absolutely. Strong national guidance, provincial governments and then local government. China, you know, is, <laughs> is a big country, 1.4 billion people. So you have a structure of government throughout. And because it's a one-party state and very strong centralized political control, uh, the political rewards for local leaders and provincial leaders who could generate growth were indeed quite substantial. So there was a competition between local governments for attracting business, attracting entrepreneurs, attracting capital, and getting economic activity going. So that played a big role. That and implicit in that embracing the private sector, those two things made the difference. You came across the, the, that provincial government that you visited. Um, you said that they were boasting about having business relationships with more than 100 countries in the world. So that province has reached out far beyond its own 
its own borders. Oh, absolutely. The Sanchi province, which is more or less in the middle of the country, so it's the far to the west of Beijing. Uh, so it's not part of the prosperous eastern seaboard of China, not at all. It's in the middle of the country. Yet uh, they have established businesses, and as you've said, they uh, established relationships with businesses in more than 100 countries. For a provincial government to do that, it's quite astonishing. Um, likewise, we went to a local uh, city, about 3.3 million people, Baoji, which is also in the province of Sanchi. Uh, similar kind of story there. They reached out. They received us very generously, very hospitably, because they want to. They want to have relations. They want to establish commercial ties. Uh, the one experience we had throughout was that the businessmen are very, very hungry for business. Uh, back here in South Africa, I've received a couple of emails from people who said, uh, we met you. These are our products. Uh, you find anybody who would like to buy these products, you know, please put us in touch and so on. They're the very aggressive business people. And in Baoji, um, it sounds as if titanium made all the difference. It's a fascinating story. It is on a river, um, but it's not a navigable river. Uh, it's inland, so there's no ocean, there's no deep harbor nearby. Yet they imported titanium from Mozambique, from Australia, from North America, and they smelted in Baoji. And they built up a titanium industry around that. It's, it's simply incredible. Uh, they produce a range of titanium products. And there again, there's a drive to innovate and to move up the value chain. So they're now developing all kinds of products to go into electric motor cars, to go into spacecraft, that sort of thing. They're moving up the value chain. Uh, and because you had titanium factories uh, other industries also followed. There are currently in Baoji 13 motor car manufacturers uh, manufacturing or assembly complete motor cars and more than 300 uh, spare part manufacturers for motor cars. It is, it is, just, it is just big. 3.3 million, that's about half the size of Johannesburg, of the greater yeah. Johannesburg? Yeah, probably about half the size, yes. You say that the, the growth model is changing. What do you mean? China burst onto the world scene as an export-led economy. They manufactured cheap goods at cheap prices and got that out onto the world markets. Over time, of course, they moved up the value chain. And they're now the world's biggest manufacturer of, of electric motor cars. And Tesla's big, biggest factory for electric vehicles is to be found in China. What is happening now is that they're focusing on three things. They're focusing on health and health services. They're focusing on green energy uh, products. For example, China is the world's biggest solar panel manufacturer. And they're focusing on digital infrastructure and digital products. Call it advanced manufacturing. So they still want to manufacture, but it's much more advanced than just making toys or uh, you know, the simple products that, that they started off with. And there's a lot of money going, going into that. Provincial and local governments and the national government give incentives to companies who innovate, who experiment, who come up with new ideas and new products. So the growth model is switching from just export-led to much more advanced manufacturing, and as I've said, health services as well. The population is also changing, it's growing older. Uh, there will be in future, m maybe already, 
fewer people of working age. Did you see how, whether they are adapting to that? Uh, very much so. We went to the Geely Auto uh, um, uh, Geely Car com uh, Company in Baoji. Uh, they started the factory there in 2016 with 1,000 people. They now have 350 workers in a factory, yet they produce more than what they produced seven years ago. Why? Robots. Uh, they've installed uh, the whole production line. You almost don't see people. You just see these robots working and arms and <laughs> legs of robots moving around. Um, some of those robots they bought uh, on the market. Some they've developed themselves. The price varied from about uh, 2.6 million to 26 million rand per robot. There's no question that they're moving up the technology spectrum. And that's one of the ways in which they want to handle the fact that the demography, as you point out, is changing quite dramatically. Uh, this year is the first year that uh, I think that China's population actually was stagnant. Uh, and its population now is marginally smaller than India's population, no longer the world's biggest population. And this trend will continue over the next 50 years or so. So the population will over time get smaller. Uh, employing robots and, of course, encouraging more people to urbanize would still be good, uh, big growth drivers for China. But yeah, that's one of the ways in which they're trying to adapt. And they, they focus on robotics to uh, developing new Oh, new yes. Layers of robots. Oh, yes. Uh, after I returned, there was an article in the South China Morning Post with some very interesting statistics indicating that in 2022, 50% of all the robots installed in the world <laughs> were installed in China. Uh, it, it is, again, just mind-boggling. Um, the same article says that according to some survey done by a Western institute, there are now 8,000 uh, smart factories and robotic factories in China. You know, the scale is just incredible. When they decide to do it, they do it and they implement. That's really the story that we've had uh, for long now, but certainly in the last 40 years. That actually leads me to my next question. You, as we've said, visited um, local government and provincial government. Impressions of how the government functions? Well, the first and overwhelming impression is that all government buildings, local, provincial, national, are modern, smart, luxurious, a place where you want to work. Uh, we were treated to a staff lunch in the provincial government of Sanchi. Well, I must tell you, I've never been to a, to a five-star restaurant with that kind of buffet and that kind of display. And this was on a Wednesday. It was in the middle of the week. Um, and it's the staff canteen. And it's the staff canteen. It's the staff canteen. Um, the, the municipal buildings are smart. They're imposing. Uh, they make our union buildings look quite dilapidated. So, you know, it's a, it's just a different in, a different visual environment. And I think one of the impacts is that the people working inside those buildings, in a sense, have to live up to, to the standard of the building. And that brings us to the fact that um, in China, for more than 3,000 years, people had to write exams before they could become a civil servant. If you wanted to serve in the court of the emperor, you had to pass an entry exam based on Confucian principles. They still have that. Again, after our return, there was a report in the South China Morning Post that this year, now in September, 2.85 million people applied to write the civil service exam for this year. 
So, you know, 2.85 million people. Yeah, it's a big population, that's true. But it also tells you how many people want to get into civil service and the loops that they have to go through. Apply to write. If it's if you're accepted to write, well, then you can write the exam and you either pass, pass it or fail it. Um, that's how they built a capable state. And they certainly have a capable state. There's no question about that. Why do you think our people, and I'm generalizing here, often so distrustful of China? I think it's us and them. I think it's because they're foreign. Um, the language is very, very different. I mean, uh, uh, if you don't have an interpreter with you all the time, you simply cannot communicate. And even with an interpreter, it's difficult to communicate. And we haven't really been exposed to Chinese culture in the way that we are to Americans, say. Or European. Or European. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, traveling to Europe, traveling to America, you know, it's, it's, it's really not a big deal. Uh, traveling to China, not that many people have done it. It's a completely foreign and 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 because of the language, uh, an alien society. Yeah, quite opaque. Quite almost. opaque for an outsider. So I think the us-them dynamic is very, very strong. Um, and that's a great pity because they are there. They're not going to disappear. They're not going to get weaker. They're the world's second biggest economy. Uh, even if they just remain number two, they're an important player. And we we have to live with them. May I ask an opinion on the American approach to China? Look, I think it's silly uh, to to declare that China is your competitor and you want to stop their progress. Uh, this is an old civilization going back five thousand years. It's the only surviving civilization of that age on this planet. Uh, you're not just going to suppress those people. They can shoot themselves in the foot and in the knee. And they've done it in the past. That's quite possible that they do it again. But that is because of internal dynamics. But if you think you can come from the outside and and, and stop people's development, I think that is a, a fool's, uh, fool's errand. It's not going to happen. That is probably the first. So what? Hmm? What is the bottom line? What are the, the takeaways? Well, the bottom line is that the Chinese are there and we in South Africa uh, not only have to live with them, but want to live with them. They're our biggest trading partner. So why would you not want to have good relations with the, the biggest trading partner that you have? The United States is our second biggest trading partner, and we would love to have good relations with them in spite of uh, their silly ambassador's silly comments. So be on good terms with the people that you do business with, um, both the United States uh, and China. I think the second so what is... If we want to build a capable state, and I think all South Africans want to do that, we don't have a capable state. I think we can all agree on that. Just look at the state of many of our local governments. If we want to build a capable state, it requires a specific and focused effort. It's not just going to happen by itself. And I think the idea of entrance exams uh, is a good idea. We started to some extent with that. Uh, you need certain minimum qualifications for appointment in financial positions, for example. But I think we can we can make it much, much bigger than that. I think this the third so what is let's learn from the Chinese on pragmatism. Um, they did not let ideology develop their economy. They let pragmatism develop their economy. And they said to local governments, experiment. Uh, play around, see what works, attract people, and then you reward the local governments with uh, 
which generate the highest growth. So pragmatism is, is the big story. What's that wonderful quote of uh, Deng Xiaoping? Yeah, Deng Xiaoping reputed to have said, what does it matter if the cat is black or white as long as it catches the mice? And I think that kind of pragmatism is, is extremely important. And then lastly, as I've said, they may shoot themselves in the foot. They may shoot themselves in both feet. That's quite possible. They've done it before. But they will determine their destiny, not people outside China. Thank you so much. I want to end with one question for listeners who may want to understand something about China. What are, what are sources that are available to South Africans? Look, there are a couple of very good books available. I found personally in my own life that uh, subscribing to the South China Morning Post, which I've done now for two or three years, have, have opened my eyes to a different uh, different world. And that's so, available online? And that's available online. I read it every day. And it gives, you a, it gives you a feel for what's happening in other part of the world. And there's some really good books. I started my reading journey on, on China a couple of years ago um, with uh, Henry Kissinger's book on China. It's as good a starting point as any. And from there, you can grow into other lit literature and, and learn more. I've also come across very good podcasts. Uh, the Economist, for example, does very good podcasts. They have a, a separate one on China. I thought I think it's called Drum Tower. Yes. Also easy listening and very informative. Yeah, and it just gives one a different perspective and it introduces you to a world other than the one in which you spend your every day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the So What podcast. If you like it, please subscribe, rate and share. This is the last one for 2023. If you haven't already, you might want to listen to the 10 other episodes available. And uh, we'll be back in February 2024. Until then, goodbye.